Well, welcome back to Christian Life Academy, and this is the third Sunday of the month, and so we are looking at uh, church history this morning, historical theology. Uh, this is our second session in this, so last time, last month we sort of had an introduction and uh, looked briefly at uh, the first century uh, of church history, which included um, you know, the, the book of Acts leading up to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD and the changes that occurred uh, because of that, both in the Roman Empire and that culture generally, but also uh, in the mindset of the Jewish people in regards to this new teaching of Christianity. So this morning we're going to kind of pick up there and move forward and hopefully make it through most of the second century. Uh, but I want to begin with a passage in Acts chapter 18 because this helps us kind of set the stage and get back into uh, where we were at last month when we looked at this. So in Acts chapter 18, uh, Paul is ministering. He's in Corinth and uh, again, controversy arises, as it does quite often when Paul goes into these different locations uh, to preach and to teach the gospel. And so we'll pick it up in Acts chapter 18, verse 12, and read through uh, verse uh, 16. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. So we can see the attitude here of uh, the Roman Empire, officially of a Roman proconsul uh, of this region, a Roman governor, uh, when this conflict arises between the teaching of Christianity and the Jews. Uh, they bring Paul before this Roman government official, wanting him to do something about it, to censor Paul, to stop him from teaching the gospel. And the Roman official's response is, well, listen, he hasn't broken any laws of the Roman Empire. This is an internal matter uh, for the Jews to handle on their own. So at this time, you can see they still saw Christianity as being part of Judaism. They still saw it as just being uh, some sect within the religion of Judaism. But we saw that what happened was when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, uh, the, the Christians at, at that point began to be viewed as something separate from Judaism. The Jews began to view Christians as, as a separate uh, religion rather than as another sect of Judaism because the Jews had not actively aided or the Christians had not actively aided the Jews in their rebellion against the Roman Empire. Uh, and the Roman Empire began to view the Christians as something separate because they began to see that there were different practices, different beliefs, uh, and the Jews and the Christians didn't seem to be on the same page. There were a lot of Gentiles that were beginning to join this Christian movement. And so the Roman Empire from that point on began to treat Christianity uh, as something unique from the Jewish religion. So what happens after uh, that 
event in 70 AD is uh, within the Roman Empire, you've got you know, this turnover uh, of emperors. And so there comes to power uh, Domitian, uh, and the Roman Empire, their plethora of gods that they worshipped, uh, one of the things that was very common was when an emperor died, he would basically be deified and become a god in their pantheon of gods. But Domitian wasn't willing to wait until he was dead uh, in order to be worshipped as a god. So he demanded the title of Lord and God be applied to him while he was alive. He wanted people uh, to worship him. And one of the acts that he took as Roman emperor, claiming this deity for himself, uh, was, he said, in the, in the wake of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Jews no longer have a temple to worship in. Jerusalem has been destroyed. And so Domitian says, listen, I am a god. I'm the god of this Roman empire. And so all you Jews who used to pay tithes to the temple uh, and take your temple taxes according to your law there to worship your God, you should send those to me now and worship me instead. Uh, of course, the Jews refused to do so. Uh, and so we ended up with another Jewish revolt. There had been the revolt in 70 AD, but now in the early 2nd century, around uh, 132 AD, we have the second Jewish revolt. And, and Part of what happens here, and this was common in Judaism at the time, is we have uh, a zealot who rises up and kind of becomes the leader of this movement and of this revolt, and he eventually claims for himself uh, that he is the Messiah, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Uh, this guy's name was Simon bar Kok, if I could even read this, Kokba, uh, and he, he claimed to be the Messiah, and he was leading this Jewish revolt, and so of course, Domitian's not going to stand for this, so he sends another army to Jerusalem. Uh, they sack the city <clears throat> once again. Uh, and in response to this, he outlaws Judaism at this point. He, he says, we're no longer uh, going to tolerate it. Your Jewish religious practices are no longer going to be tolerated. Uh, and he extended this to the Christians as well and said, this is not going to be tolerated for you to act like atheists, as they called the Christians, and not worship all the gods of Rome. Uh, you, you have to begin to worship our gods or you're going to be criminals. And so persecution spread and picked up steam. And so the early church is being persecuted now. Uh, by the Roman Empire, actively persecuted, no longer uh, enjoying the protections that Judaism had enjoyed up to that point. Uh, and so in order for somebody, a Gentile, a member of the, the Roman Empire, to become a Christian, not only do they have to uh, break with the traditions and ties to their family and the religion that they had grown up with, now they have to make this decision to become a Christian knowing that it's going to involve persecution. Uh, so they're very serious, right? They're not becoming a Christian in a flippant way. This is a serious thing if you're going to become a Christian because there's very real persecution that's going to follow. At the same time, uh, you've got all sorts of other teachings that begin to rise up in the Roman Empire, uh, and some of them within this uh, new movement of Christianity. And one of those uh, is Gnosticism. Uh, that begins to uh, gain popularity around 90 AD and, and 
goes on into the third century. Uh, but in the early uh, years of the second century, we have what was known as the Gnostic controversy. Uh, so the Gnostics were Greek philosophers uh, who believed that there was secret knowledge. Uh, and that's what Gnosticism means, a hidden or secret knowledge. And so uh, they thought there was a secret knowledge that could be gleaned, some of it from the pages of Scripture, uh, but it was, it was not obvious, right? It was like a code that had to be deciphered to get to this secret knowledge. And one of the views they had was that the spiritual realm, the spiritual thing, world was pure and holy, but the physical world was corrupt and was wicked. Uh, and so they were all about the, the, the inner man, the spiritual aspects, and decoding and deciphering the Bible to find these hidden messages and this secret knowledge that not everybody had. Uh, and what this led to was a movement within the early church known as docetism. And this was a movement that was largely birthed out of the Gnostic beliefs and philosophies uh, that came to, to this idea that, well, if the physical world is corrupt and wicked, and if Jesus is God, then obviously Jesus couldn't have actually had a physical body because the physical is evil inherently. So they came up with this idea that Jesus, as a spirit being, only appeared to have a physical body. He didn't actually have a physical body. It just looked like he had one to everybody else. It was a, a, a trick, a sham. Uh, and of course, this wrecks Christian doctrine, right? If Christ didn't have a physical body, uh, then he wasn't actually sacrificed on the cross in place of humanity. Uh, so docetism uh, was considered by the early church to be a heresy. Uh, and so uh, we have these different uh, leaders that are rising up in this movement uh, and teaching different things. One of them is a guy named Marcion, uh, and his followers uh, became a fairly large movement. Uh, and he embraced a lot of the Gnostic teachings and ideas. And one of the things that, that he rejected was the Old Testament in its entirety. He said, we didn't need it. That was the Jewish scriptures. Uh, we just need the teachings about Christ in the New Testament, uh, but not even all of the New Testament. There were parts of it that he didn't like either. So uh, he did away with all of the Old Testament, about half of the New Testament, and kind of came up with his own really condensed canon of scripture that he thought Christians ought to hold to. We still see this today, right? Uh, Marcionism was condemned by the early church as a heresy, and yet uh, we've got guys like Andy Stanley in the last year or two have been talking about unhitching our Christian faith from the Old Testament, uh, that we don't need it anymore. Uh, so uh, there really is nothing new under the sun. These ancient heresies still come back around and get uh, brushed off and reused. So all of this is happening in the Roman Empire, and the Christians are being persecuted. And so by the mid-2nd century, uh, Christians are beginning to try and answer the accusations that are being made against them. They're being persecuted. They're being charged with crimes in the Roman Empire. They're having to fend off heretics that are arising from within their own ranks. Uh, and so we see the rise of what is known as the Christian apologists. Now, the word apologist uh, comes from the Greek word that is used in 1 Peter chapter 3, 
Uh, and here's the, the context, 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. Peter writes and says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense or an answer. There's our word where we get our English word apology to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So, this is where we get the word apologist or apology. Uh, it's not apologizing for the Christian faith. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's giving a defense of the Christian faith. So accusations are being made against the Christians by the Jews, by the Romans. Uh, they're being charged with crimes. Uh, they're being called cannibals, atheists, unpatriotic, uh, perverse because of their love feasts, calling one another brothers and sisters. Uh, and so the Christians begin to uh, answer these accusations. Now, you'll notice in what Peter writes here, this is not people coming and going, hey, I'm really interested in Christianity. Can you tell me about it? And then the Christians being ready to give a defense to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you. Like they're not coming and asking because they're interested. They're asking, what do you have to say for yourself, you criminal? Right? That's, that's the context in which this answer is being given. Uh, it's a defense. And sometimes even in a court of law sort of setting as the Christians are defending what they believe. One of the early church fathers who was known as uh, one of the early apologists was a man by the name of Irenaeus uh, who lived from 130 to 200 AD. Uh, and he defended the faith against a number of heresies. Uh, he wrote against Gnosticism uh, and Docetism and he wrote uh, letters that were apologies for the Christian faith, defending what Christians believed and sent them to various officials within the Roman Empire uh, to try and explain what Christians believe that, hey, no, we're not, we're not uh, cannibals, we're not unpatriotic, we're not bad citizens, we're actually good citizens of the Roman Empire. Uh, and so uh, he was one of the early apologists. Another one was a guy by the name of Justin, who we typically call Justin Martyr because he was martyred for his faith. Uh, he died in 165 AD. He also argued against Gnosticism. Uh, and he, but he, he was careful in his apology uh, to note that you know, the Greek philosophers had stumbled across some truth uh, in their philosophies. Uh, he believed that all truth was God's truth, and so he, he said, hey, the Greek philosophers are not entirely wrong about everything. They got some things right. Uh, they found some shadows of God by thinking about the created order, but they've come to some wrong conclusions, and Gnosticism especially uh, has gone off the rails. Uh, and so he argued against Gnosticism. He wrote uh, letters that he sent to the Roman emperor uh, defending the Christian faith, uh, but he was beheaded in, in 165 A.D. Another guy that we know from church history who was important is a man by the name of Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp was uh, a pastor, uh, a disciple of the Apostle John. Uh, he defended the faith 
uh, quite vigorously in his sermons and uh, encouraging the church. Uh, but he is arrested, he is put on trial, and eventually uh, burned at the stake for his Christian faith. But as they are preparing to put this elderly man to death, uh, he says this. So we have this record of what he said. He said, 86 years I have served Christ and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king, the one who has saved me? Because when they're putting him to death along with other Christians that they beheaded, that was what they, the Romans were trying to do is get them to renounce Christianity, uh, to embrace the Roman religions and all the gods of Rome. And so Polycarp refused to do so, and they burned him alive at 86 years old. Uh, other important uh, characters are uh, Tertullian from 160 to 225 AD. He was a, a North African uh, churchman who argued against uh, some of these same heresies, and another heresy that had begun to arise in the late second century was the heresy of modalism. Uh, modalism says that there is one God who appears in three different modes. So modalism rejects the idea of the Trinity, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as coexisting, co-eternal, and rather says there's one God who at times presents himself in the mode of the Father, at other times in the mode of the Son, and at other times in the mode of the Holy Spirit. Some modalists would even say God was the Father in the Old Testament, he was the Son uh, in the New Testament, and since Christ's ascension, he is now the Holy Spirit. And so they reject uh, this idea of the Trinity. Tertullian argued against modalism and defended the Christian faith against this heresy. Again, this is a heresy that we still see today. T.D. Jakes is one of the primary component, uh, proponents of this. Uh, he is a oneness Pentecostal. He rejects the idea of the Trinity. Uh, in fact, much of the Pentecostal church was that way originally. Uh, the Assembly of God was originally a non-Trinitarian uh, church when it was first founded. And about 10 years after its founding, they had a split because some of them wanted to believe in uh, the Trinity and others didn't. And so uh, the Assembly of God became Trinitarian in 1916, and those who left and, and held to modalist beliefs became known as oneness Pentecostals. So Tertullian argued against it in the second century, and here we still uh, have it being broadcast on the airwaves today. Another movement that arose uh, that is related to the modalists is the movement called Montanists. The Montanists arose in the late 2nd century uh, and they proclaimed themselves to be prophets. They said that they had the Spirit of God and they were a new generation of prophets with new revelation from the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so uh, they proclaimed a, a city in Phrygia to be the new Jerusalem. Uh, the new head, uh, capital city of Christendom, so to speak, uh, and they claimed that they had all these new revelations from God and new words from God. Uh, obviously, they had a lot of prophecies that didn't come true, a lot of failed prophecies, uh, and so the church argued against Montanism and uh, declared it to be a heresy. Uh, other things that we have that happened in the first century or the second century was uh, we actually have our first list of the New Testament books. Uh, it's known as the Mertorian Canon or Fragment. It was written, they think, around 170 to 190 A.D., uh, and it lists all of the books in the New Testament with the exception of Hebrews, James, and First and Second Peter. Uh, they're not 
declared not to be part of it. They're just not mentioned. Uh, but it mentions all the rest of the books in the New Testament. And that's one of the oldest records that we have of the New Testament canon. Uh, another person worth mentioning is a guy by the name of Hippolytus who lived from 170 to 236 AD and he is the first one that we know of to record what he called the apostolic tradition. It became later known as the rule of faith and now we call it the Apostles Creed. Uh, so this is the first record that we have of it is from his writings right around 200 AD. But as we think about everything that's happening in the second century, mass persecution throughout the Roman Empire, uh, accusations against the Christians of all these crimes and of all these uh, odd beliefs of cannibalism and whatnot, all these heresies that are arising from within the church, uh, crazy beliefs such as Gnosticism or modalism or, or all these different things, we, we would have to stop and ask ourselves, well, in, with all of that going on, how is it possible that the, the church in the second century grew as rapidly as it did? There were all kinds of people, Gentiles from across the Roman Empire, coming to faith and joining the church. Why would they do so in the face of such persecution and with such internal conflict with all of these heresies arising? What, what was happening that was attracting uh, these Gentiles from the Roman Empire to embrace Christianity. Uh, I mean, Rome in general thought that the Christians held, as one uh, Roman writer said, outlandish superstitions. So why would a Roman embrace Christianity, uh, especially with the increase in persecution? Well, I think there are three major factors that led to this. I mean, obviously, the the Spirit of God was at work to bring people to repentance and to faith. But as we look at what was happening in the Roman culture in the second century, and it's very interesting as we think about these three things to compare to our own culture today. Uh, the first one is, is that by the mid-100s, the mid-second century, uh, the Roman Empire, particularly uh, the elites within the Roman Empire, had descended into such moral depravity that not only the Jews and the Christians were appalled by it, but many common citizens of the Roman Empire were beginning to go, this is really messed up. Like they're having massive orgies, they're abusing their slaves, and it, it, it's, it's really bad. Uh, and so many people within the Roman Empire began to question the morality of the culture that they lived in. Uh, they began to look for answers. Uh, is there something better? Uh, is there something uh, that would provide some moral guidance? They weren't finding it in the Roman religion. Most of the Roman gods were seen as, as being just as perverse as the Romans had become themselves. And so some of them began to look for answers within Judaism. Uh, within the pages of the New Testament, we see them referred to as God-fearers, men like Cornelius and whatnot. And, and they embraced Judaism to some extent, right? But they didn't convert to Judaism fully. Partly, it may have been grown men not wanting to submit themselves to circumcision, uh, but but they were looking for answers. They were looking for moral guidance in the midst of a culture that had decayed uh, and embraced perversion. And along comes Christianity, and Christianity offers to them uh, a basis for morality. 
It offers them moral guidance in the midst of this culture of perversion, but without the legalistic requirements of Judaism. It offers grace and forgiveness, and it offers a set of standards based on God's word for how people should live morally without these legal requirements of Judaism. And so we can read a passage real quickly here from Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, from Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes and says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. And so Gentiles within the Roman Empire that are looking at the culture around them and going, this, our culture has descended into moral sewage. Where do we find answers? Where do we find hope? Well, here the, the Christian faith is presenting hope for them. You were once a part of this, but by faith in Christ, you can put to death. Uh, this sort of moral depravity uh, and embrace godliness. Uh, And so Christianity is providing uh, this moral guidance that they're looking for. Well, if you think about our culture today, uh, we're not much different than the Roman Empire. We're a culture that has descended into uh, moral ambiguity, moral depravity as far as sexual ethics go. Uh, And if people are looking at the culture around them, even non-Christians, and looking at the LGBTQ movement and other things and going, is this right? Is this really how, Christian, how people ought to live? If they're looking for answers, the culture has none for them. Uh, but Christianity does. Christianity offers uh, a set of standards, a set of moral instructions and guidelines that come from the Creator. Uh, so we have the same thing to offer our culture that Christianity had to offer uh, the culture of the second century there in the Roman Empire. The second uh, aspect is, is that within the Roman Empire, uh, there were people who began to look around and realize that uh, their culture not only had descended uh, into this moral perversion, but it had descended into a place where there was no longer any respect Uh, for human life. There was no respect for the value uh, of other people. Romans treated uh, their women and their slaves as property uh, to just be used and discarded. Uh, One uh, Roman writer actually said this. Uh, He said, we have uh, Cortesians for pleasure, young female slaves for day-by-day physical usage, and wives to produce legitimate children and serve us faithfully by managing our houses. I mean, that was the view of the Roman elites. We have professionals who can provide sexual pleasure when we want it. We have slaves at home just for our day-to-day use. And then we have wives who give us legitimate heirs and manage our households. But women were just treated uh, as something just to be used and discarded for pleasure. Uh, Their slaves were their property uh, to be used however they wanted. But along comes Christianity, and Christianity says, uh, no, Uh, Humans have dignity created in the image of the God who made them, and and they all have equal worth and value. In Galatians 3, uh, chapter 
chapter 3, verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seeds and heirs according to the promise. So Christianity taught uh, its followers to treat each other with respect, regardless of whether you were male or female or uh, a free man or a slave. All people had dignity and worth created in the image of God. Uh, and so this appealed to those within the Roman Empire that were beginning to question uh, the morality of their culture. And again, we look at our culture today, uh, abortion, uh, even euthanasia, uh, appealing to people. There's no respect for human life. There's no respect for the dignity and the worth of humans made in the image of God. But Christianity has that to offer. We have uh, revelation from God himself declaring that no, all humans have worth and value as those who are created in the image of their creator and are to be treated with respect. And within the Christian church, Right? We don't have this class structure. It's, we're specifically commanded. If someone rich comes in, they don't get a better seat than a poor person does. We don't treat people that way. We treat all people equally as being uh, sons and daughters of God. And then thirdly, uh, Christianity provided something that the Roman religion itself could not provide. The, the Roman uh, religion with their pantheon of gods uh, had these gods that were like superhumans, uh, but they were not knowable, right? You, you couldn't have a relationship with the Roman gods. You couldn't have a relationship with Mars, the god of war. Uh, you, so you couldn't really know these gods. You just had to worship them from afar and hope that you pleased them so that they would uh, send blessings your way. And so many, Christian, many Romans were becoming disillusioned with uh, the religious offerings of their culture. But along comes Christianity who says, God not only created you, but God cares so much about his creation that he came in the flesh and lived as a human and suffered and died in the place of those who would believe on him. Uh, and so you can have fellowship with him. You can have fellowship with God uh, through faith in Christ in fact, John writes in his first letter, in 1 John chapter 5, and says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Christianity offered an opportunity to actually know God, to actually fellowship with him, uh, to have this knowledge of Christ uh, and that he had come in the flesh uh, and sympathized with us in our weakness, which was something that the Roman gods could not offer. And what really stood out to many within the Roman Empire as this persecution is happening against the Christian church was as men like Polycarp suffered in the flames or other martyrs, they were strengthened by their understanding of Christ's own suffering, that their God had suffered for them, uh, and, and they were strengthened by that. 
Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse 10, and says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And so this knowledge of Christ's suffering strengthened uh, so many of the martyrs that they faced death uh, with such peace and such joy that it really had a massive impact on uh, the Romans who were watching them. Uh, One of the the martyrs who uh, was killed in the second century was a young woman named Blandina. She was in France uh, and she was killed in in 177 AD. She was in Lyon, France. Uh, She was physically handicapped. They took her into an amphitheater there and, and tortured her all day long trying to get her to renounce Christianity, to renounce Christ, and to embrace uh, the Roman God. They wanted her to burn incense to the emperor. She refused to do so. Uh, And so after torturing her all day, they crucified her in the amphitheater with a crowd watching. Uh, She still refused. Uh, They took her down from the cross after a couple of hours, scourged her, burned her over a, a, a fire, And then they turned wild animals loose in the amphitheater and she was gored by a bull and died while the crowd is cheering for her death. But her refusal to renounce Christ in the face of such pain and suffering had an impact on some of the people who were watching that. And so other people came to faith because of her testimony and because of her Uh, joy and her faithfulness to Christ even in the face of this kind of persecution. And so all through the second century and into the third century as Christians were being persecuted uh, and yet refusing to renounce Christ uh, and joyfully uh, embracing death because they were fellowshipping with Christ in his suffering as Paul says in Philippians. This was something that the Romans didn't see in their own religion and so it appealed to them. Hey, these, these Christians, they have moral guidance. They have moral standards uh, that they live by. They have respect for all people and they have a God that they know that, they, that, that has come in the flesh and has fellowshiped with them and they are embracing suffering uh, because they have been encouraged by his suffering on their behalf. And so this, this is the reason why uh, Christianity was able to grow throughout the second century, even though it was being persecuted. And I think that these same three uh, key components are things that Christianity still has to offer our culture and a culture that is suffering uh, from moral depravity, that is not honoring and respecting uh, human life, and, and a culture where people are increasingly isolated from one another uh, and don't have a relationship with God. They're, they're told that there is no God to have a relationship with. Uh, and so people are, are genuinely uh, dissatisfied with what the world is offering them, and Christianity uh, has the answers for them. And so just as the Christians in the second century uh, needed to be ready to give a defense uh, for what they believed, and that defense had an impact and caused the church to grow in the face of suffering, uh, I believe that the church now uh, in our own time can learn that same sort of endurance and faithfulness uh, and joyful willingness uh, to suffer if necessary, uh, but to speak out uh, into a culture uh, concerning morality and ethics and the value of human life 
and the joy that is found in having a relationship with Christ who suffered for us. Uh, and so that is what we can learn from the second century, and next month we will look at the third century. Let's close in a word of prayer.